Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. The title of this sermon is Real Christian Unity, Part 1. Real Christian Unity, Part 1. So Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Once you're there, if you are physically able to stand as we publicly read God's word, that would be great. And I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Starting in verse 1, Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning. We ask you to be with us as we dive into your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word. Lord, that you would use a weak vessel like me to declare your word and that you'd remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess it up. Lord, we pray that in everything, that we understand what you're saying here and that those who are saved, those who belong to you will live accordingly, that we will repent of the things we need to repent of. We pray for those who don't know you, that they would hear your gospel in your word and that they would be saved. And we just pray in everything, God, that you would be justified or that you would be glorified. That's what we pray, Lord, that for your glorification. So be with us this morning, Lord, and may we make much of you in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, our Lord Jesus prayed the following prayer to God the Father. He said this, he said, I pray not only for these, meaning the apostles, but he says, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. So he's praying for us. What's his prayer? He says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. This was his prayer for Bible-believing Christians. He prayed that we would be united in him and that we would not be divided. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 13, verse 35, he told the disciples what the result of this unity would be. In John 13, 35, he said, By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. 
So what he is saying is that the world would know we belong to Jesus by our unity. Yet look around. Are all true Christians united? No. And I'm not talking about false believers that go to false churches that claim to follow Christ, but they don't even believe what's in the Bible. We're not even counting them. Okay, We, we need to be separate from them. I'm talking about people who get the gospel right. So they're saved. And yet they are divided. This division happens on a global scale as some Christians, real Christians, will have nothing to do with other real Christians. And this kind of division also happens within individual local churches like ours, where people will divide. And this is a problem. Jesus prayed for unity. We're supposed to be united. And listen, the same problem that exists today, it existed in the ancient church as well. Our text this morning has Paul addressed this problem in the church of Rome. And what he tells them, he tells us. What would help them fix their problem of division will help us fix the same problem. And so that is what we're going to look at over the next few sermons because that's the part of Romans we've now arrived at. Okay, Christ desires unity among true believers. And so the main point of our text is how we get that unity, or at least how we maintain that unity. And so for the note takers, the point of the text is this. Christians must not judge or despise each other over personal preferences. Christians must not judge or despise each other over personal preferences. If we would stop this, then if if we would stop this, then much of, if not most of the division in the church would go away. Okay, maybe not all of it, but most of it would go away if we would do this. If we would stop judging or despising each other over personal preferences. Now, Paul is going to show this in three phases in this text. First, he's just going to command it. He's going to tell us what this main point. He's going to say, don't do this. He's going to command it. Then, second, he will explain that command so that we really understand it. And then third, he's going to warn what happens if we ignore it. Okay, so that's kind of how this text is broken up. That's what we'll see as we go along. But given how big of a problem this kind of division is in the church today, and given how misunderstood Romans 14 is, I'm actually going to take it slow, and that's why this is part one. We're not going to get through all of it today. We're actually only going to get through the first part, which is where Paul commands the main point of the text. Now, it's been a while since I last preached from Romans, so I do think we need to remember where we're at in the book of Romans Paul spent the first 11 chapters giving us the gospel and its promises in some very glorious detail. He showed us that we're saved by grace through faith, by the work of Jesus alone. It's not based on your works, right? You're saved by what God has done alone. He elected you in eternity past. He sent Christ into his creation 2,000 years ago. Christ earned that perfect righteousness to give to those who believe. He died to take the penalty of those who believe. He rose on the third day. If you believe in him, you're united with him in his death. You're united with him in his resurrection. You are part of the people of God. You're adopted as, as the, a part of the household of God, and we will make it to the end. Those are all the beautiful promises that are said in the first 11 chapters. Now, once he got to chapter 12, he then started telling us how this wonderful gospel, this good news, how it's supposed to change the way we live. He told us it's supposed to make us into living sacrifices where we now live for the Lord. That is our true worship, living for God. It makes us as those who do not conform to this world or conform to this age, but we live differently because we think differently. Our minds are supposed to be renewed. 
This gospel also shows us that our life now that we are saved is about imitating Christ. We are to imitate him, right? Since we've received the gift of salvation and imitating Jesus means we seek to give rather than to get. So what does that mean? That means you've been given gifts or a gift, a gift or gifts from the Holy Spirit, and you're supposed to be seeking to give, to use that gift for the church and for the kingdom of God. Chapter 12 hit all of that. He then said, we're supposed to live in a way that's according to God's word. We're to live that way in general. We're to live that way in the church. And we're to live that way in the world. We're not supposed to be hypocrites. We're to consistently live a Christian life. We're also supposed to obey the government, is what he said at the beginning of uh, chapter 13. Now, of course, if the government tells you to disobey Christ, you don't listen to the government. But in all other cases, we obey the government. We're not supposed to be political rebels. Now, of course, there's more that Paul could have told us about right living. And he says more in his other letters in the New Testament. But starting in chapter 13, verse 8, he begins to start to move in the direction that he's intended all along. It turns out there was a problem brewing, actually already present in the Roman church. Now, if the believers would live like believers, if they would be those living sacrifices, if they would use their gifts for the sake of others, then yes, this problem would go away. But they're not doing that, right? So Paul's kind of set the stage, big picture. How does the gospel change us? So that they now have the the roadmap to change and to fix the problem. But with that said, he's now going to move in the specific direction to confront the specific problem. In chapter 13, verse 8, he tells the church to love each other, love one another. He tells us that love fulfills the law of God. If you love your neighbor as yourself, he said, you won't commit adultery, you won't steal, you won't covet, you won't murder, you won't break any of those commandments, okay? Because it's, it's love of self that causes you to do those things, okay? But love of others would cause you not to do that. So he says, live according to love, and we won't have these, these problems of division, He then showed us that to love each other in this way is to live according to the perfect age that is coming. See, sin and selfishness are the offspring of this age, the present evil age. But in the perfect age to come, we're all going to love each other perfectly. None of that garbage is going to be there. So Paul told us, start doing it now. Why wait for that age? Start living that way now. In fact, he said our salvation is nearer today than when we first believed. So we need to live like it. Stop living in a manner congruent with this age. Live instead for the age to come. And that will change the way we serve God. It will also change the way we deal with each other. So how do you live for that age? You love each other. That's where he ended. Okay? Well, all of that buildup strongly implies that the Roman Christians were failing to do this. They were failing to love. Now, if you notice, this is Paul's longest letter that he wrote, and yet he has not corrected them a single time yet. In Corinthians, Galatians, he's correcting them the whole way through. But here, not one correction until this chapter. This is the first one. And the correction comes directly in verse 10, which we'll get to next time, okay? He's going to start correcting them for something big. So we need to know what's going on in this Roman church in order to understand what Paul is getting at here. And this is important, right? Sometimes people don't want to know the context, but the bottom line is this. This chapter is one of the most misused and abused passages in the entire Bible. 
People will use this chapter to either tell people or other Christians what they can't do. Well, because of this chapter, you can't do this. Or they'll use it to tell you what you can do. You can do whatever you want. I mean, some people use this chapter to, to enslave people. Some people use this chapter to liberate people to do even wrong things. Right? People will use this chapter to tell somebody, you can't do this because it offends me. As if offending me is the same as stumbling me, which it's not. Right? People use this in all the wrong ways. Others will use this chapter to despise Christians who feel they need to follow a stricter code. Some Christians want to follow a stricter code, right? And so some folks will despise them for that and say, you're denying the gospel. Pretty much this passage is going to be used by people to do that, to despise those who want to follow extra rules, or it will be used by those who follow extra rules to try to force everyone to follow those rules, right? Or it's used by the people who follow no rules to say none of us should follow any rules. It's crazy. And here's the irony with this all. This passage is meant to get us to live in unity. Yet this passage has been used to create more denominations and more division than probably any of the other ones I could think of. Okay, the only way we can achieve unity is if we are fine with a diversity of opinions on matters that do not affect the gospel. That's really what it comes down to. But instead, what people do is they aim for the opposite. They use this passage to define uniformity rather than unity. There is a difference, okay? Uniformity is having everyone have the same opinion and same practice. And so what ends up happening? Some people become uniform to one group. Then others will say, no, I don't want to. And then they become uniform to another group and Christians split, And then those of one party go and do church over here. Those of another party go and do church over there. And then it makes it look like Christ is divided. And then when an unbeliever asks the difference, the first group says, well, those guys over there, they don't take the Bible seriously. They're willy-nilly. They live how they want. We're the only ones who follow the straight and narrow. But then the unbeliever goes and asks them and says, what's with those guys? Oh, they're just a bunch of legalists that think they're saved by, by working hard. They deny the gospel. And by the way, if somebody does think they're saved by working hard, yeah, they do deny the gospel. But sometimes people will accuse people of that when it's not true. Okay, so pretty much there's no unity because people are wrongly demanding uniformity. And Paul's entire point in this chapter is for us not to do that. But you know what happens? People will come to this chapter and they will use it to talk about everything other than what the text is talking about. They will make this chapter about alcohol or tobacco or tattoos and body piercings or card playing and dancing or you ladies, do you wear skirts or pants, you know, or or hymns and contemporary music. Which is it? They come to this passage and make it about all the wrong things. And the end result is people divide over all those things. Unity is broken. Love is denied. And everything that Paul has written since chapter 12 goes right out the window. It should not be so. This chapter is meant to reinforce what was written before, not to undermine it. So, with that said, we need to know what this is about. And up front, this is about Jewish Christians wanting to keep a kosher diet, observe the Sabbath, and keep the feast days of Israel. I know it's hard for us to picture that because you don't know a lot of Christians that are Jews. Well, in this church, you know a few. But most Gentile Christians don't. But back then... A lot of Christians were Jews, right? And so this is about Jewish Christians wanting to keep a kosher diet and observe the Sabbath and the feast days of Israel. And this is also about Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers in Christ, wanting to eat any kind of food and not keep any day as special, but to treat every day alike, okay? And let me just be a little precise. 
When I say Jewish and Gentile believers, I'm saying this in general. There were definitely some Jews like Paul and Aquila and Priscilla who would eat non-kosher food and occasionally miss some of the feast days of Israel. And there were some Gentiles who, for some reason, wanted to imitate Israel. And so they tried to keep some of the Old Testament commands. Okay, So I'm not saying only Jews thought this way and only Gentiles did, but generally they did. And so really what you have are two ways of thinking about and living the Christian life. One way is tied closely to the practice of Jewish Christians and Israel, okay, the Old Testament. And the other way was tied closely to the practice of Gentile Christians. So you've got these two different ways of living out the Christian life. Now, before I go forward, it's worth noting that there are no gospel issues here. And what I mean is you might be thinking, wait a minute, Paul took a hard stance in Galatians. He's not taking a hard stance here. Why? It's because in Galatians, there was a gospel issue. The Judaizers were saying that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish believers, that they had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's what they were saying. So then freaked the Gentiles out. They started circumcising their kids, keeping the Sabbath, um, all sorts of things. And Paul said, absolutely not. Don't you dare. Gentiles do not have to do those things. Okay? So this controversy brewed. Eventually it led to a council of all the church leaders in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where you have all the apostles there, you got all the elders, and they make a decision on this once and for all, of course, led by the Holy Spirit. And that decision was Gentiles do not have to do this. Gentiles do not have to keep the law of Moses. They don't have to observe the Torah. They believe on Christ. They're now grafted in to the people of God. Boom, settled, controversy done. Now Paul's on the other side of that controversy. No one anymore is able to walk around and claim that the apostles in Jerusalem require you Gentiles to keep the Torah. You can't say that anymore. Everybody has a copy of the letter now, okay? So that problem solved. But there's another issue that comes up. That letter that went to all those churches was only addressed to the Gentiles. If you read it in Acts chapter 15, it is not addressed to every Christian, but it is specifically addressed to the Gentiles. So what about the Jews that believe in Christ? Are they supposed to keep the law of Moses still? The expectation from the Jerusalem council is that many would still live like their counterparts in Israel. They would still circumcise their sons. They would keep the Sabbath. They would celebrate the feasts. Paul who adamantly opposed the idea of forcing Gentiles to do those things, he did all those things himself. Just read the book of Acts. He circumcised Timothy, who was his adopted son, because Timothy did not have a Jewish father. So Paul took it on himself, and what did he do? He circumcised him. Paul also kept the Feast of Pentecost in the book of Acts. He made a Nazarite vow. He paid for four other people's Nazarite vows. Paul was a guy who, when he could, he kept the law himself, but he would never impose that on Gentiles. Now, just in case you don't believe me, I want us to read Acts chapter 21 because this helps us have a a mental construct in a sense to understand the controversy that's happening in Romans 14. In Acts chapter 21, verses 20 through 25, Paul shows back up to Jerusalem. He meets with the Jerusalem leaders of the church, James, the brother of Jesus, our Lord, um, as well as the other leaders of the Jerusalem church. And Paul tells them all the good things God's been doing among the Gentiles. And they're like, that's awesome. But then they also say, Paul, people have been spreading rumors about you. And then they're going to come up with the solution. So Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 20, here's what it says. It says, when they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. 
But they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what's to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who've made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. That's a Nazarite vow. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, this is an important text. And so notice what they said to Paul first. They said there are thousands of Jews here in Jerusalem that believe in Jesus, but they are zealous for the law. So that tells you it is not inherently wrong for Jews that follow Jesus to be Torah observant. That's what it says there, right? And then second, these guys tell Paul rumors are going on about you, but they're false. These guys didn't believe the rumors about Paul, that Paul was telling Jewish believers, hey, you don't have to do this stuff anymore, right? Stop circumcising your kids. Stop observing the Torah. They said it was a rumor, and Paul, these rumors are false. Notice they said that. And then third, they made a recommendation that if Paul would follow it, then everyone would know the rumors aren't true. And then fourth, they acknowledged it was only with reference to the Gentile believers that they wrote that letter in Acts chapter 15. It's all right there. Now listen, if Paul, if Paul disagreed with this, he would have said so, right? This is Paul, man. He put Peter on blast in front of all the Galatians. Or actually in Antioch, he did that, but he wrote it in Galatians. So Paul, he doesn't take nothing from nobody, right? And so if Paul disagreed with this, he would not have gone along with it. You keep reading that chapter in Acts, he goes along with it, okay? He follows their recommendation. It amazes me how many Christians ignore this passage and they claim that the new covenant means that Jews who believe in Jesus have to abandon all old covenant customs. Some have went away, some we can't keep, can't do anything about that. But they say, no, it means you have to stop being Jewish and live like a Gentile believer. The Bible never says that. This text just showed the opposite. But people will find all kinds of ways to to deny what this passage says. They'll say things like, well, this was a time of transition, you see. And so these things were permitted to Jews only for a while, but eventually they were going to have to hang it up. Listen, the Bible never says that. There's only one place you're going to find that, and it's in the book of First Opinions, okay? It's not there, okay? So we can't take something we make up and enforce it, you know, into the text to make the text not say what the text is actually saying. That's the wrong way to go to the Bible, okay? So you have Jews in Jerusalem at that time that believe in Jesus, and the way they worship, they would worship Jesus, everything the New Testament says, but also they were still keeping a lot of the Old Testament stuff. If you were a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem, that is easy to live out because just about everyone in your church is Jewish. It's easy to be kosher. It's easy to be Torah observant. Let's say you move to Corinth, right? The Corinthian church, the vast majority are Gentiles, right? So in that place, it's easy to live for Christ in a way that's not Torah observant. It's easy to live for Christ in a way that that fits the way the Greeks would, would do their Christianity in a sense, right? But what happens when you have a church that now has a lot of Jews and Gentiles in the same church, And what happens if one of those has a majority, the Gentiles, but there's still a lot of the Jews, and then the one with the majority tries to force their way onto the minority and say, this is the only way we could do it. Well, if you have that, you have the problem in Romans chapter 14. 
And, and, and that's the issue. That's the context that's going on. See, the thing is, in an all-Jewish church or in an all-Greek church, it's not hard to get unity. In fact, it's easy to assume you have unity when you really just have uniformity, okay? But it's not unity. Your uniformity is just a matter of your culture and everyone in your place just happens to share it. But the gospel, according to the Bible, is saving people from all kinds of cultures, right? So what happens when a church is blended? What happens when the gospel saves multitudes in an area where many cultures are present? Are we supposed to segregate? Yeah, the Chinese church over there, the English church. Obviously, if you can't speak languages, yes. You know, you got to be able to understand what you're hearing. But what if we all speak the common language of the land, which back then was Greek, or today was English? The expectation is that we do church together, that we don't segregate and form these, these little, I guess, monochromatic churches. So Paul's telling them there must be unity when you have this diversity, when you have these differences. But how? How do we get that? Again, the point of the text, Christians must not judge or despise each other over personal preferences. You do that, we'll be sweet. It, the, the, these divisions won't happen. Okay? If that's followed, then you can have a church with different cultures and practices actually thrive together. And that's exactly what's supposed to happen because God is saving people from every nation, tribe, and tongue through Christ Jesus our Lord. But when people push their preferences in order to redefine unity as uniformity, then churches will segregate. You will end up with two groups of people in the same city claiming they worship the same Lord, but they can't stand to do so together. That's what will end up happening. They certainly are not showing love, and they are not listening to John chapter 13, verse 35, where Jesus said the whole world will know we're his disciples by our love for each other. So I hope you could see how this is relevant for us today. The contemporary application is not about tattoos and body piercings. Okay? Instead, it's about why is Sunday morning the most segregated two hours of the week in our land among people who are supposed to be the most loving people towards each other? And listen, this is not just white and black folks. Okay, or a white and black problem. You also have messianic congregations and Gentile congregations in the same city segregating. This is all a problem. Now, I know we haven't got to the text yet, and I've been going for a while, right? I've talked for a very long time about the context so that we can understand the text for the next couple sermons. But there's one more thing I have to say before we actually get to the text. Okay? Some of you may have realized this. Some of you may have not. But here's the thing, a lot of people like to take chapter 14 of Romans and marry it to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That is not a wedding made in heaven, okay? It's not. This text is not talking about the same thing as 1 Corinthians 8. People always try to put these together, and they're wrong to do so. Yes, both do talk about food, both talk about stronger and weaker believers, but here's the difference. In 1 Corinthians, it's talking about believers eating food sacrificed in a pagan temple in the temple itself. So you're in the temple of Zeus, feasting away with pagans worshiping Zeus. You're like, ah, you know, drinking with them, eating with them, and eating the food that you know was sacrificed in a religious procession to Zeus. And what that chapter is saying is if your weak brother sees that, you're going to mess him up. Who's your weak brother? The weak brother is the new convert who's just coming out of Greek paganism. He hasn't quite grasped everything that monotheism is yet. And then he sees you, the mature Christian, in Zeus's temple, you know, stuff in your face, right? And then he's going to think, wow, it's okay to follow Jesus and Zeus. It's okay to worship Yahweh and the Greek pantheon. And now you've destroyed that person's faith. 
That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So the first thing he says is he's like, let's start with love. Let's pretend this is a liberty issue, okay? Don't ever eat that stuff in front of this guy so that he doesn't stumble this way. Then in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look, I've laid down liberties. I deserve to be paid for my work, but I'm not. I'm doing that for you guys. If I could do that for you, you guys could lay down wanting to eat this food in Zeus's temple or whosoever temple, Asclepius, whoever, right? But then in chapter 10, Paul makes it clear this isn't a liberty issue anyway. He says it's always wrong for Christians to participate in these feasts in pagan temples, right? It's always wrong. He starts off in the first 10 verses or no, 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 10, uh, going to the book of Numbers, explaining how God punished Israel for that same thing. And then he tells you, listen, even though the idols aren't real, even though Zeus isn't real, we know demons are behind all of them. And you can't eat at the Lord's table, meaning taking the Lord's supper and eat at the table of demons as well. So he's saying, do you want to provoke God? Knock it off. So ultimately, in 1 Corinthians, the issue is about people who are committing sins by participating in paganism and then justifying it by saying, yeah, but I don't believe in those gods anyway. And Paul's saying, you can't do that. That isn't, what they were doing was forbidden for both strong and weak believers. That is nothing like our chapter this morning. This is talking about Jewish folks keeping kosher food laws and keeping the Sabbath. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament yet. It was being written. Their Bible was the Old Testament. So if you open up the Bible, a lot of commands about eating those foods, a lot of commands about keeping the Sabbath. These guys think they're just being biblical, right? Okay, so this is about those Jewish folks wanting to keep those rules, But it's also about the Gentiles who know that we're not required to do so. So how do these two groups coexist? Understand that no one is sinning here by either eating kosher or not eating kosher. It is a matter of personal conscience. Both are obeying passages of Scripture in their actions. But Paul will make it clear that one group is theologically stronger. One group is more right than the other in their practice. Now, the reason I bring up this distinction between 1 Corinthians 8... And Romans 14 is is for two reasons. First, people try to use one to interpret the other, and you'll definitely get both wrong if you do that. Let me tell you what happens. If you bring these together and you use them to interpret each other, then what happens is you start saying that sins are liberties and liberties are sins. You totally get it backward, and you start messing up. So don't do that, okay? And then the second reason I bring it up is 1 Corinthians 10, in that chapter, Paul makes it clear sin is never a liberty issue. If something's wrong, it's wrong. When it comes to sin, you actually must judge your brother. There are a lot of passages within the church that tell us to hold each other accountable. And I'll I'll cite some of them a little later. The church is not allowed to tolerate sin just to keep going on and on, right? You are misapplying Matthew 7, verse 1. If you say, judge, lest thee not be judged, it's talking about hypocritical judgment. There's too many other passages that say when it comes to sin in the church, we have to judge. Okay, that's what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians. But when it's not a matter of sin, but it's just a matter of preference or culture, as long as that cultural practice isn't sinful, then it's a liberty issue. And if it's a liberty issue, the way we attain unity is by not judging or despising each other over these preferences. So again, I'm sorry for all that buildup. I do think it'll make it the next few sermons easy for us to move through this passage with all that information in mind. And so that we can understand why it's ultimately not about tattoos and body piercings and skirts and stuff like that, okay? Now, 
I mentioned the point of this text is Christians must not judge or despise each other over personal preferences, and Paul shows this in three stages. The first stage is he just commands that. So let's look at verses 1 through 4, and we'll see that. In verse 1, Paul begins with both a positive and a negative command. And, And what I mean is the first half of the command tells us what to do. The second half tells us what not to do. So let's look at it. Verse 1, he writes this. He says, welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. Okay, so in the first half, what are we commanded to do? Welcome the one who is weak in the faith. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be weak in faith? As he goes on in this chapter, it's going to become clear that the one who is weak is the one who believes that he or she must keep kosher food rules and keep the special days of Israel. If, now, the key word there is must. These people think they must do this. If a Jewish Christian thinks he must keep these things, and he thinks, then that means if he thinks he must, then it means he thinks he's sinning if he doesn't. Oh, I missed Passover this year. I have committed a sin. Okay, and objectively, that's not true. Objectively, that's not true. It is not objectively a sin if a Christian Jew does not keep those things anymore. But this person thinks it's a sin. So because his conscience has made something to be a sin that really isn't a sin, he is now, quote, weak in faith. He does not bask in the full freedom that the gospel offers. But that's okay. He's still saved. He still understands that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, secured by the work of Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. So yes, this person's justified. This person's being sanctified. This person's saved. And you might think, but, but, but they have extra rules. So everybody probably does that to some extent. Listen, just because we're saved by grace, I want you to think about our salvation. Just because we're saved by grace, it doesn't mean we don't do good works. We were created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works right? And it doesn't mean we don't obey God's commands. Even though we're saved, there's a lot of commands still given to us. It doesn't mean that we don't work hard to resist sin and evil. We're told to flee from various sins. We're told to look out for Satan because he's prowling like a lion looking for someone to devour. Those are all things we, as saved believers, are supposed to be doing. And guess what? All of us at times fail, in fact, all of us every day, fail to do what we're supposed to do and all of us fail to resist sin. So what do we do when that happens? When we didn't follow through on a command, or we sin? We feel bad, right? And then we ask God for forgiveness, and then we try to do it right next time, right? That's the Christian life, isn't it? Well, some people happen to think the list of things that God commands is bigger than it really is. That's the only difference here. They think the list is bigger than it really is. And so when they fail to keep the things on their list that are extra, They feel like they let God down, just like all of us do when we sin. And so that's what's going on here. But since they are adding things beyond what the gospel implies, they are weak in faith compared to those who don't do that. And so that's why I would say, and I know this could get me in trouble with some people that I know in other parts of the country, but I do believe messianic congregations or a messianic Jew that believes that he must do these things, I believe this chapter says those people are weak in faith. They are the weak brothers, okay? Now listen, there is a difference between that and someone like me. I don't know, and you're visiting, I am Hebrew, I'm Jewish, but I don't believe I must keep those things, okay? I don't, but I do believe I should keep those things when possible, Okay, or when I'm in a context where it makes sense to keep those. 
And that's exactly how Paul and Barnabas saw it. Right? The reason I should keep it is because when those commands were given, it says this is for your people for all your generations. Okay, so to have a continuity with the Jewish people, to have Jewish Christians that are distinct, that still show that, that the scriptures, these are Israel's scriptures, and Israel's people still believe them, it makes sense for us to function like Jewish believers, and not just to completely be absorbed, let's say, into the way Gentile believers do things. So I think I should keep those things, by and large. I just don't think I have to, because the scripture makes it clear I don't. And that's how Paul saw it. Paul did not always every year leave the Gentile mission to get to Jerusalem for Passover, which when the temple was standing, that was the rule. But he didn't always do that. If he could make it, he would. If he couldn't, he wouldn't. Otherwise, he didn't sweat it. So my distinction between must and should is a very important one. A Jew that keeps the feasts and chooses to eat kosher when around other Jews is not inherently the weaker brother. He's only weaker if he thinks he sins if he doesn't do this. Okay, And the second half of this chapter will make it clear that this is far more about a person's conscience than it is about the action of eating kosher or keeping the Sabbath. It's the conscience. If the person's conscience thinks it's sinful, then it becomes sin for that person. And that's why they're the weaker brother. If their conscience isn't bothered by it, then really these don't matter. Okay, So it's not so much about the actions, it's about the conscience. My conscience is not bothered when I eat shrimp or pork. But neither is it bothered when I eat matzah, okay? I'm not the weak brother. I will likely do all-you-could-eat shrimp tomorrow at Red Lobster because they have their Monday special. I'm not the weak brother. <laughs> so the first half, first half was to welcome the one who was weak in, in verse 1. And, and I want to explain what this word welcome means. In Greek, the word welcome means to accept him. Accept the weaker brother. This carries the idea of receiving the person into your circle of friends. Not saying, hey, you're weird, you're different from us, you could sit in that seat right there by yourself while the rest of us do our own thing. No, you're actually incorporating them into your circle of friends. So this is a person who thinks the foods that you eat would be sinful if they eat them. And what he's telling you is to receive that person. Rather than force that person to agree with you, receive that person. Accept this person into your group just as he is. And you might be thinking, okay, we'll accept him. But then once we get that friendship going, bam, we're going we're gonna to show him that he's wrong. What's the second half of verse 1 say? It tells you what not to do. It says, don't argue about disputed matters. You receive the person and you don't argue about it, okay? So this guy just happens to think Jews should keep the Sabbath or Shabbat. I don't. Who cares? Who cares? Don't argue about it. Let him keep the Sabbath, and then you do what you do. That's what he's telling us here. Now, again, this is not talking about sin. Sin is never a dis- or sin is not a disputed matter. Okay, disputed matters. <laughs> okay, sin is not under or sin's not up for debate. Okay. What Paul means by a disputed matter here is clear. The words disputed matters in Greek literally means different opinions. Okay, you might have an opinion about sin, and if you're wrong, you're wrong, right? But something like this, you can have different opinions and it doesn't matter. These are different opinions on things that don't matter to God. Sin always matters to God. So again, this here is dealing with liberty. 1 Corinthians is dealing with sin. Romans 14 is dealing with liberty. And by the way, I know we normally don't think this way, but liberty goes two ways. There is the liberty not to keep kosher, and there is the liberty to keep kosher. And the reason why I say that is most folks on the liberty side think that liberty is only for those who choose not to do something, right? 
I have liberty because I choose not to. But this person who's choosing to, to keep kosher, they're a legalist. And they need to stop. Well, you've just imposed a law on them in the name of liberty. You've used liberty as a law. Now you're the legalist. Do you understand? You could be legalistic while you're proclaiming liberty. You've now imposed a standard on someone. That's legalism. Okay? And I could keep kosher as a liberty. I could say, I know I don't have to, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm free to. That's liberty, not legalism. Now, if I say, because I keep kosher, you have to as well, and you sinful pork eaters or whatever, then I would be wrong. I'd be wrong in that. Now I'm being the legalist. So do you see how like both those who eat and don't eat can either both be for liberty or both be legalists? We have to learn to think that way. When you are trying to force someone, when you're arguing with them about it, doing the opposite of what Paul says, you are being a functional legalist, and it's wrong. Now, in verse 2, Paul's going to make it clear what he's talking about. He writes this. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. So those are the two camps. The first believes all food is clean. And guess what? They're right. That person's right. Because in the Gospels, Jesus declared all food clean. And God showed Peter a vision of that in Acts chapter 10. Okay? But Paul, even though they're right, he tells the person not to argue about it with the person in the other camp. Now, the other camp is the one who's weak. He says the one who is weak eats only vegetables. I've been telling you vegans are the problem. No, I'm just kidding. This has nothing, this has nothing to do with vegetarianism or veganism. Nothing to do with that. This is about somebody keeping kosher. So you might be thinking, why does Paul say this person who's kosher is only eating vegetables? Well, let me explain this. Jews who lived in Gentile cities as a minority would normally set up kosher food markets, okay, where they could buy their meat and their wine, and they know it wasn't sacrificed to idols, okay? It wasn't sacrificed to idols. But whenever you would have waves of anti-Semitic violence in these cities in the world, the kosher markets would be shut down. And so now the Jews would be like, we can't buy the meat and the wine because we know it's being sacrificed in those temples, Now, if you take that idea to the city of Rome, I told you guys, I think when I started the book of Romans, that in the year 49, Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome because they were arguing about Jesus. He died six years later. That's when they were allowed to come back. Paul wrote this in the year 58. So the Jews had only been back in Rome for like two and a half years by this time. They may not have reestablished the kosher market. Or if they did, they might not let Jewish Christians shop there because they're blaming them for them all getting kicked out of Rome. Either way, these Jewish believers in the Roman church did not have a kosher market by which they could buy the food, the meat, and the wine that they knew was not sacrificed to idols. So if there is no kosher market, then you have to assume if you're a Jew, that all the food was sacrificed to idols and that the wine was, was poured out as a libation to the pagan gods. And by the way, kosher was legitimate back then. I say this because group rights have privileges, group membership, as Vody Bakken would say. I think kosher is a racket today. I said it. All right. But anyhow, so the thing is, but these guys, it was really like all the stuff was being sacrificed to gods. That's not the case today, right? So that's why I said that. Jews love their meat. They love their wine but they're not going to eat it back then if it's associated with pagan gods. So what would they do? Well, they had an example in the Old Testament of what to do in the person of Daniel. 
You may be familiar with Daniel chapter 1. That was the first time that Torah-observant Jews were exiled outside of their land and had to live among pagans. And by the time they were in Babylon, there were no kosher markets yet. So what did Daniel ask? He, said, he asked if he and his three buddies could only eat vegetables and drink water. Okay, And so what that did is that kind of said, this is what the pious Hebrew does. When we're surrounded by Gentiles and we don't have access to a kosher market, we eat vegetables and we drink water. So again, they thought they were being faithful to what the Old Testament teaches. So I say all that for two reasons. One, I want you to understand that the vegetables here has nothing to do with vegetarianism, so don't go after people who don't want to eat meat, right? And second thing, please, for the love of God, don't go to Daniel chapter 1 and say, God has given us an inspired diet by which we could cure cancer. No, this had everything to do with just being untainted from paganism. All right, so getting back to the point, the strong brother or sister knows that the food does not need to be kosher. As Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, you could go buy meat in the market, okay? Just don't ask if it was sacrificed to idols. It probably was, but don't ask. Just don't ask. Buy it, ask no questions, bring it home, thank God for it, and it's clean, right? And then eat it. The strong folks understood that, right? They understood, hey, I buy it, I don't ask, I pray over it, it's clean. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be kosher. I don't have to get it from the kosher market, okay? That's the strong person, okay? The weak one is like, nope, got to get it from the kosher market. So again, summarizing, verse 1 tells that strong person who understands that, receive the one who's weak, Okay? Don't argue about it. And then verse 2 just tells us who each party is. Now in verse 3, he's going to issue another command to both of them. It's interesting. He says in verse 3, One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. So pretty much there's two different parts to this. The one who eats the meat, who knows it's okay to eat it, must not look down on the one who does not. Now, this word, look down in Greek, actually means to despise. Don't you dare despise the one who thinks he's got to eat that, the, the kosher food. Don't despise him, okay? Don't look at him and say, foolish legalist. I can't stand these people with their dumb little rules. I, I'm not inviting this guy to my UFC party because they're just going to judge us over every little thing we do that they disagree with. Forget them. They don't understand the gospel. All their little rules prove that. They're slaves to their extra-biblical rules. We don't need them. They'd be better off founding their own Bible study or their own silly church, but no one will go because who wants to be around a bunch of fuddy-duddies who make up a bunch of rules just so they can enforce them, right? If you say that in your heart and you want these people far away from you, you're despising them. That is not the love of Christ. We are not to despise them. Paul told us not to do that. But then for the weak, right, he tells the weak this. He says, you weak ones must not judge the one who does eat, okay? Do not judge the one who does eat the meat. Now, notice the difference. The strong are told not to despise. The weak are told not to judge because that's normally what happens, right? Legalists are very judgmental. They're hypercritical people, highly judgmental. You could see it on their face, okay? I've seen this happen before where you'll have a woman from an independent fundamentalist Baptist church. We'll see another woman she hasn't run into a long time. And the first thing she does is look to see if she's wearing a skirt. And if the woman's wearing pants, all of a sudden you see it on her face. You know, you could see the judgment. You could see the hypercritical spirit there. 
They're very judgmental. It's not so much despising, it's judgmental. Like, I can't believe this person. This person's dressing like a man. Don't they know that's against the Bible? You know, they're just thinking this stuff in their head. Now, again, they think their rules are from God when they're not. So they think others might be sinning when they don't follow those same rules. They judge because of that. Paul's telling them, you better not. Stop it. Stop judging. In fact, he's going to be harder on the weaker brother in the first four verses than he is on the stronger one. Okay? He's telling them, don't judge the one who's eating. And then he tells you why. And this really grounds it. This should make everybody think twice before they judge somebody over personal preferences or opinions. Okay, verse 3 says this. Don't judge him because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the one that God has accepted? You are not God. You don't get to say who God accepts and who God does not accept based on your own hypercritical opinion. And of course, every judgmental person thinks that their opinions derive from the Bible. 99.999% of the time, it's not. Okay? You don't get to say. In fact, in verse 4, Paul heavily rebukes the weak believers when they are being judgmental. He says, Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls. He will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Again, you're not God. So who are you to judge God's slave? It's kind of interesting. In the ancient Roman world, only a servant's master had the right to judge his performance. Only the master could judge a slave. It was considered highly rude and inappropriate for a guest in a house to criticize a household slave. You know your slave is lazy, didn't clean my plate, what are you doing with your slaves? That is absolutely unacceptable in that world. Now, I know for us, it's hard to picture because it's the opposite in America. In America, people will go to a restaurant. They don't like the waiter, so they call the employer over, tell you, you need to fire this guy. He's horrible. You know, this is the worst waiter I've ever had. And then, of course, you leave, and then that that waiter gets chewed out. Okay, If you were to do something like that in the ancient Roman world, you'd be thrown out onto the street. You're talking about my slave? Who do you think you are? I'm the one who gets to judge him, not you. Okay, and I, and I think one reason we have all these problems in churches in America is we treat each other like we're the customer and everybody else are the waiters. Instead, we need to keep our mouths shut and understand we're just the guests and everybody else is God's household servant. He gets to judge, not you. Remember, this is not about sin. Okay. If it was, then yes, you could judge because there's way too many other passages that command us to judge sin in-house. 1 Corinthians 5 says, expel the moral brother. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you got nobody in your church who could judge these matters before you? Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 tells you, if your brother's in sin, you go and correct them, right? So we, we have to. Matthew 18 definitely tells us to do that. Okay, so again, Paul wouldn't tell us to contradict that. These are about matters of opinions and preferences here. If somebody complained to me that our deacons don't shake enough people's hands, right? Therefore, they need to be removed. I want you to fire this deacon because he's not friendly. He's not out there shaking people's hands. First thing I'm going to say is handshaking is not one of the deacon qualifications that is mentioned in the Bible. I'm not going to go punish this person on account of your preference. Now, listen, the legalist is always going to push back, though, They're going to say, I know handshaking's not in the Bible, but they're being rude. And the Bible says we're supposed to be hospitable. That person's not being hospitable. Fire them, you know, or whatever. And and here's the thing. Man, chapter and verse is what we go off of. Everybody can find a way to reason back five principles from their legalism to some scriptural principle. We are not bound by that. 
We are not bound by other people's consciences, okay? So the bottom line is, what does the Bible say? That's the accountability we have here. Otherwise, when it comes to preferences, we don't judge each other. We don't despise each other. So if the believer that will not eat meat is judging the faith of the one who does, Paul's saying, who in the world are you to do that? Who do you think you are? That's God's servant, not yours. And Paul says at the end of verse 4, he says, before his own Lord, he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Who saves us? Is it our works? It's God. If God saves you, you're going to stand. This person that you're judging is saved by grace. They've received Jesus as Lord. That means all of Jesus' righteousness is imputed to that person's account. That means the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, now dwells inside of that person. That person was elected by God before the foundation of the world. All that stuff comes from the first 11 chapters of Romans. And now you're going to deny that about someone because they don't follow the same rule that you impose on yourself? Who are you to do that? Don't do that. That is the command. So, how do you have unity among people with diverse preferences, whether individual or cultural? He says, accept each other. Don't argue about the differences. Don't despise the weak if you're strong. And if you're weak, don't judge the strong. God has saved both groups. They will answer to him, not to you. So, that's the command. I said Paul shows this first by commanding it. Boy, did he command it. Now, in the next part of the text, he's going to explain the command more, but I'm going to save that for next time. Right now, what I would like to do is consider some ways that we could apply what we've learned. Okay, there's got to be some application. Now, the most straightforward application of this is that if any of your, let's just have the most literal application. If any of your brothers or sisters in Christ happen to be Jewish and they want to keep kosher and keep the feast, don't make a big deal out of it. Don't, don't, don't go tell them they can't because we now have liberty. Okay, just be quiet. <laughs> you know, and a lot of Christians will never have to deal with that. But here you got a couple Jewish families. So the idea is don't make a big deal out of it. And definitely don't make a big deal out of it if they understand that they're not required to do these things, but they still think they should for the reasons I said earlier. Okay. Otherwise, if you're still going to criticize them, then you have a problem with Paul and the apostles because they thought the same way. Now, of course, there's going to be other folks. Let's expand this besides just Jewish folks, there's other folks that we could have a similar application for. Some folks grew up Seventh-day Adventist. And even though they now reject the erroneous theology from that group, they might still see a benefit in keeping the Sabbath because there is a benefit in that rest principle. They may even see a benefit, a health benefit, in keeping the food rules. Again, that's not a big deal if they believe the gospel. If their faith is in Christ, you're to accept that person. Don't guilt them to giving up these things that they think are helpful for them. You're not supposed to argue endlessly about this. But of course, we could take this beyond seven-day Adventist folks. We could extend this even to those who have very specialized diets. Some people are on ketogenic. Some people are on gluten-free. So maybe the diets help them. Maybe it's just a placebo. It's not your job to say it's just a placebo, okay? You shouldn't disregard their preference and ostracize them over it. When possible, try to accommodate them. Accommodation doesn't mean you give up what you eat. It means when you get together, you have something there that they can eat too. That's what accommodation would, would look like. Okay, that is thinking about other people. Now, all three of those examples I just gave are from the perspective of the strong brother. Just don't judge them, accommodate. Now I'm going to talk to the weak brothers, right? I'm going to switch it. 
If you're the one who eats kosher and you're the one who keeps the Sabbath, you have no right to judge those who don't. And if you are on a specialized diet, you should not form cliques of friends that only eat the way you eat. I remember about 10 years ago, someone in our church said it was hard to get invited to eat with groups unless you were gluten-free. That was the specific one at that time. And then that person went gluten-free and they were invited to eat with a lot of people. And then they stopped and those invitations disappeared. And that was horrible. Absolutely horrible. I'm like, man, that's just wrong. Now, that's not a problem now. Thank God. But it was then. And that's this kind of thing where the people who have the more specialized version who have imposed it upon themselves are kind of only keeping to themselves, which implies a judgmentalness towards those outside. We're not supposed to do that. Remember, this is about maintaining unity among people who have differences on things that God gives us liberty on. It's about maintaining unity when there are different cultures who've accepted Christ in the same area. We should be able to function as a church without dividing into segregated churches, segregated over a lot of silly things, right? Part of that requires that you understand what is a matter of your culture and not confuse it with what's in the Bible. I'm going to throw just two technical terms out there, function and form, okay? And the sooner people understand this, the better off they'll be for the rest of their, their lives. Functions are the things, the universal things that the Bible commands Christians to do and churches to do. Those are the functions. The forms are how we do those things in a particular setting. Okay? Sometimes people think their form is the function and then they judge other peoples and groups because they do the same thing a little differently, even though they're still doing the thing that the Bible commands. So let me give you the big example that divides churches, I think, in our circles these days. Hymns versus contemporary music. Oh, yeah, I went there. Okay? Some folks claim we should only sing the hymns. In their mind, the hymns are biblical and timeless And anything new is just a capitulation to our culture. We're just selling out to the forms of our culture. And listen, I say this not to be mean, but that is a very ridiculous position. Most of the hymns and most hymn books are less than 300 years old. Not all of them, but most of them. At one time, they were new. And in their time when they were new, the traditionalists didn't like them and said the same thing people are saying now about the contemporary. Okay. Furthermore, those hymns, represent only a single cultural expression of singing to the Lord. That is English, like from England and from America. That is a single cultural expression of how those songs were, how the melodies were written, the instruments that they were, they were written for. Do you really think that the Psalms, as they were sung by David and his legion in Jerusalem, would sound like the hymns of English speakers? I've had one person tell me, no, it needs to be quiet and just a uh, a guy on a stool with a, uh, an acoustic, and it can't be loud. In Chronicles, it was so loud it split the ground open. Now, I'm not telling us to make it that loud. We'll have to buy earplugs all the time. But what I'm saying is you can't say that these preferences are biblical, okay? Do you think that when the gospel reaches new villages in Africa or new regions of China or Middle Eastern towns, that the faithful songwriters who know the Bible are going to write songs that sound like the hymns that Isaac Watts wrote? No. Why don't you watch some, some missionary videos where like the dispatches at the front where he, this guy goes and visits all these churches in persecuted lands and he, every episode he at least has a worship service filmed. They are singing their hearts out unto the Lord, but it sounds like what you would expect to sound like in their country, okay? So we're not supposed to confuse our forms with the function, okay? The songs are faithful, and it's beautiful, 
And one day we'll get to hear them all before the throne of God. When some folks divide over hymns versus contemporary, I believe they are ignoring this passage. Because the hymns, again, that is a cultural expression that you're trying to force on others. You're saying you can't sing these other ones. That becomes legalism. Some people, and let me hit it the other way, some people will show up purposefully late to church because they don't like the songs that are sung or the style. If you do that, you're wrong. You're not pursuing unity with your brothers. At the end of the day, the style and the newness and oldness is not what matters. The cultural expression is not what matters. The only thing that matters in a song is whether or not the lyrics are faithful to God, whether or not the lyrics are faithful to the word of God. Do they reflect what the scriptures teach? A lot of old hymns do. Some don't, right? And a lot of new songs do reflect the scripture, and a lot of new ones don't. It comes down to the faithfulness of the lyrics, Some folks will argue also, well, you can't sing a song if it was written by somebody with questionable theology. Now, if somebody's theology is questionable, you should pause and say, I probably shouldn't trust their music. But if you look at what they sing and you look at the lyrics and it's still faithful to the Bible, it's the words that matter, not the person. Somebody be like, no, 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 that's not true. And then I'll say, hey, do you like It Is Well With My Soul? That's one of the best hymns of all time. That was so amazing why that guy wrote it. That guy died a heretic. It was not well with his soul when he died. Yet, we still sing that song because the words are biblically true. People are not consistent in how they apply this. And so the same is true with contemporary songs. We sing them if the words are faithful. Yes, a lot of them are garbage because of anti-biblical content, but some of them are good. Okay, the ones that are bad, you reject. The ones that are good, you sing. Both hymns and contemporary. It doesn't have to be either or. But then other folks will still push back. And and notice the ones pushing, it's always very legalistic arguments. They'll make arbitrary judgments. Yeah, but you know what? Your new songs are lame. You want to know why? Because you keep repeating the same chorus over and over again. That means the writer has no theological depth. That's why you need to go back to the older hymns where you don't repeat the stuff over and over again. And then I just would respond, have you ever read Psalm 136? It repeats the chorus 26 times. Others will say, well, a song's not biblical if it doesn't have a certain amount of stanzas. Some of these songs are only 20 words long. No depth. Have you ever read Psalm 134? It is short, incredibly short, and it was sung repeatedly as people ascended the hill of Jerusalem. And bear in mind, the Psalms, all 150 of them, are the worship songs of ancient Israel inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. So be careful when you judge a song over stylistic reasons, you might be judging God. And you don't want to be found there. Now, one reason I bring this issue up is because it is often the highly doctrinal, reformed folks that make these kind of claims. And we, we roll in that circle, right? Okay? And yet, in this case, the reformed folks who are very doctrinal, very in the word, who say these things, they're the weaker brother, according to our text. Their doctrinal prowess is supposed to make them strong. But on this issue, it's the opposite. And then another reason I bring this up, and so one of it's to correct people who share our theology but just get this wrong. And then another reason I bring it up is because a song style is a cultural issue, not a biblical issue, as long as the lyrics are faithful to the Bible. It's exactly the kind of thing our text applies to, right? It's an issue of preference, not sin. And what's the command? Don't judge each other over it. Don't despise each other over it. Just accept each other over it and come and sing these songs together. And yet you know how many churches have divided over music? 
There have been churches that have divided over whether or not the song leader should start with a pitch pipe. Man, those guys are going to have to stand before the Lord one day. So the bottom line is, we should not be dividing over things like this. Now, next time, we're going to go deeper into the text, and and there will be other examples that that I'm going to give. I'll offer examples also when it's okay to divide. There's going to be some times where it is doctrinal, and you have to divide. And then if we have time, no guarantees, I'll still find a way to see how this weighs on trifle matters like tattoos and piercings, okay? Because I know some people are like, but I've always heard this about that. I'll try to fit it in, but that's not what this is about. But there is a way I think we could bring it in to speak to that. So anyway, as we will see in the coming weeks, this division over food and special days, you want to know the crazy thing and why this is so important, why Paul's hitting it so hard here? It's because this issue was causing this church in Rome to divide at the Lord's Supper. They would not take the Lord's Supper together. The Jews would say, because here's the thing, the Lord's Supper back then wasn't just the cracker and the juice. That was the high point. But they ate a whole meal like a potluck before that. Okay? And then after it was done, they would take the Lord's Supper. And so the, the, the weaker folks would say, listen, we can't attend this agape feast with all these, these sausage links, man. Come on. You know, really, lobster? How do you even get it here? And so then, then the, the other folks, the stronger folks, would be like, well, that's what we're eating. If you're going to come, you got to live with it, man. And so then they wouldn't come. And so now over the Lord's table, they're dividing over this which slaps the work of Christ in the face because 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 together tell us the Lord's Supper not only shows how God saved us, but it shows how we're united. We are the one bread, 1 Corinthians 10 says. And if we fight this, we fight this, then guess what? If we divide at the Lord's table over dumb stuff like this, then we're slapping the Lord's work. That's why Paul is hitting this so hard. And that is why a text like this is so important Christians, we talk so much about love. We define it, we explain it, we illustrate it. We then point to God's love in Christ for us. We then close the Bible and we tell the church, we say, now go and do likewise. Love as God loves us. And then we go on and segregate over music style, food, and special days. We segregate over faithful cultural expressions of living the Christian life. In other words, we only accept people who are just like us. We don't want unity even though it's commanded. We want uniformity, and that's wrong. That's wrong. We need to knock it off. Those who are strong and place no unnecessary binding rules on themselves, they want everyone else to be like them, and they despise those who aren't. They need to stop. Those who are weak judge everyone who doesn't do things the way they do it. They're hypercritical. They need to stop as well. Both are being functional legalists. We just need to stop. We need to stop judging people based on our own personal standards. Okay, well, this person doesn't clean the way I clean. So, well, that person doesn't say, I say hi to 12 people. They only say hi to eight people. What kind of person are they? Or that person goes to Christian concerts. Or I saw that guy post that he went to a rap concert. He listens to Lecrae. You know, I saw it on, on, on Facebook. Or that person plays Dungeons and Dragons. Or that person hugs people of the opposite sex. Oh, my gosh. Or that person only shakes their hand. He doesn't even love them. You know, and all I got to say is give me a break, okay? We need to stop this kind of stuff inside the local church. We need to stop this kind of stuff on social media. We need to stop labeling people as false believers if they disagree with us on matters like this. Now, we're going to see more next time. But the bottom line, again, is we are commanded to love each other. Love is what fulfills the whole law. 
and love is expressed by unity. And that unity is maintained when we as Christians stop despising and judging other believers over our personal preferences. It's that simple. May we live this way. May this be what's on our hearts all the time. And may we pray that this will be true of us all the time. Now, if there is any unbeliever here, I know a lot of this kind of sounds weird. So this guy talked for an hour, a little more probably, about eating. Like, what's with these Christians? Well, ultimately what it's about is us being at peace with each other. And there's a lot of foolish things we divide over. We're supposed to be at peace with each other. But your problem is way worse than ours. Because your problem is you're not at peace with God. At least we're at peace with God, but your sin puts you at enmity with God if you do not know Jesus as your Lord. And one day you will stand before God who's a consuming fire, and he will judge the sinner for their sin. But listen, God made a way of salvation. That is why Jesus, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, entered his own creation 2,000 years ago so that enmity you have with God could be turned into peace, and then you could join us and argue about food. Okay? But the bottom line is, you are at enmity with God. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, never sinning, so he could give believers the credit of that perfect life. And then he died on the cross to pay the penalty of all of our sin. If you believe on him, if you turn away from your sins and believe on Jesus, then you are forgiven of all your sins, right? You're forgiven of all your sins and you get his righteousness. And then you have eternal life. And then you could enter into our debates, right? But uh, we don't want anybody walking out of here not at peace with God and damned for all eternity. So there's no like raising your hand, saying a special prayer. We're going to pray right now. And you could just pray to God, Lord, I turn away from my sin. I believe on you, Jesus. I believe that you're Lord. Believe on him and you'll be saved. And then come talk to me after and I'll walk you through this. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to pray. And then after I pray, I got a quick little thing about the Lord's Supper and baptism, and then the worship team will come back up.